Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. Hi, this is Amy Helfeld from Seattle, Washington. And you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Amy, thank you so much for your support and to everybody that backed our Kickstarter at the end of last year, which has enabled us to carry on all year long and produce the tennis podcast for you. Hope you're enjoying it. We certainly are. Catherine's here. Hello, Catherine. Hello, David. Hello, Matt. You all right? Hello. Yes, fine. Thank you. Good. We have had the most wonderful (laughs) weekend watching old tennis matches from Rome, which we are going to relive with you today from 1992. The story of Gabriella Sabatini's extraordinary run in Rome, four titles in five years. And also, we'll just talk about her more generally. She's one of those players that, that tends to get forgotten, I'm afraid to say, including by us. I can't think of many times that we've mentioned the name Gabriella Sabatini over the last eight years of the tennis podcast, and we're going to put that right today. She also turned 50 as well over the weekend, so it feels like a good time to do that. And we're going to go back to the 2006 men's final between Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. I dare say many more of you will remember that one, and maybe some of you watched it with us over the weekend. So lots to talk about. Before we do that, uh, let Let's just mention the news of the week, which is that more tennis tournaments have been cancelled uh, up until July the 31st on the ATP circuit and the ITF events, the wheelchair events, have been announced. On the men's side, tournaments like Gestad, Bostad, uh, Kitzbühel and Newport all cancelled because of the coronavirus. Uh, and we await to find out what will happen with the American swing in August. But... I mean, it doesn't sound great, so we'll have to wait and see. Uh, Several WTA events until mid-July cancelled as well, but no great surprise, I'm afraid. Uh, Catherine, I should say as well, following on from songs that could be used for the coronavirus era, a particular mention for EJ Stanton on Instagram, who suggests, don't stand so close to me from the police. Yep. Yep. Acceptable? Yeah, that's yeah. I've heard that mentioned uh, a lot over the last. Uh, like, uh, we were going for more. I don't want to d- diminish EJ's contribution there, but we were going for You're for about more to. <laughs> for more specifically songs that reference the absence of crowd. 
Right. So rather than sort of general coronavirus social distancing song yeah. gags, which which I, I feel I, I, is anyone else a bit over sort of uh, coronavirus social distancing song gags? No. I'm just sort of over the whole thing generally. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very difficult time for cynical people with a dry sense of humour, because there's a lot of well-intentioned sort of sickly peppiness and sort of we're all in this together and we'll come through this and have you considered crafting? Um, you should be crafting. Oh, we're all going to come out of this as better, more well-rounded people. And, you know, if you poo-poo all that, then you're a aren't you? But <laughs> I really, I'm so over all of that. <laughs> this, folks, is Catherine Whitaker, who has just shown us her latest 2,000-piece jigsaw, uh, which makes two in a row that she's knocked together now. Uh, and she's also on about her 50th podcast of the year with two weeks' worth of dailies to come during Roland Garros. Peppy Catherine. Yeah, but I'm not, I'm not smugly telling people. Have you, <laughs> have you considered podcasting? It's, it's it'll make you a better human being during these challenging times it's definitely made me a better person <sighs> have you always done jigsaws no i mean i have you know on occasion in in over the years done the odd jigsaw but but no it's definitely it's a necessity matt it's it's i i'm not doing this to to self-improve I'm doing no, it. I'm doing enough. it to to pass I'm, the time. I'm, I'm just impressed because, not to call them out or anything, they might even be able to hear me through the walls. But my parents have started jigsaws, and they're really not very good at them. <laughs> how can you be? How can you be bad at jigsaws unless you've got bad eyesight? I mean, you've done you've done about five of them in the t- space. I oh, would more, not have been able to do one. More I could than not that. have done like one. Really? Colossal no jigsaws. We're talking two thousand yeah. pieces. My parents are struggling with five five hundred pieces. Maybe they need help. I would just <laughs> hand it over to my kids. If I was doing a jigsaw, there's no way I'd be doing it because I'd just lose but interest. But it's just – no, but you don't lose interest. It, it's – it's oh, God, I'm going to sound like one of these awful peppy people. It's, the, <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's very mindful. It gets me off my phone. Oh, that's good. It, it's okay. very. It's you can still sort of be watching the telly. Well, obviously not. Phys- you can have something on the telly in the background and be paying attention to it, but it gets you off your phone. It sort of it concentrates the mind. Oh God, I I hate myself. Move on. <laughs> I can multitask, is what you're saying. Awesome. Okay, well, you so- you specifically cannot multitask, so I would no. say it's a non-starter for you. Okay, all right, fine. Uh, meanwhile, folks, we have been putting photos on our social media channels of ourselves in 1992 where possible, because Matt didn't exist in 1992, uh, and 2006 respectively. Matt has created quite a stir with his <laughs> picture of a tennis magazine on which he as a child prodigy is on the front cover wielding his racket like richard gasquet aged nine um except there's no strings in the racket ah that's the giveaway so what what was going on there matt because a few people were taken in by it 
it's my absolute probably favorite thing that's ever happened to me that people actually think i was on the cover of tennis magazine aged 10 um it was just at wimbledon in the lta tent where you could go up and have your have your photo taken in front of a green screen and they would then imprint it onto it was ace tennis magazine and yes, they put my photo up there alongside the words the the not a the future Wimbledon champion. Yeah, um, as if you were going to win all future Wimbledon titles. Exactly, I was going to men, be the, men's the defining Wimbledon champion <laughs> of the future. <laughs> and having experienced this game, I can tell you it could have happened. You've been likened <laughs> to a young Marin Cilic in appearance. Yeah. Mm. Not sure what to say about that. Well, he he won U.S. Open, so I'd go with that. Yeah, no, great. <laughs> I'm strongly in favour of all comparisons to professional tennis players. A singular US Open title is not, you know, all Wimbledon titles, though, is it? It's no, st- that's, I mean, that's still an underachievement relative. I don't think we're actually doing any matches from 2007 for Tennis Relived. Who knows how long Tennis Relived will be going on? We may have to come to 2007 at some point but I actually went back the following year and appeared on the front cover again uh, <laughs> no. let's, just do it anyway. let's just put it up as a, as a sort of extra yeah. because is that's it, what the people want well, I'm in my school it, uniform in that one <laughs> I took two full days to find a photo from 1992 that I could deem acceptable and even that one had me wearing a World Wrestling Federation t-shirt and a Chicago Bulls the first hat. one David submitted to me was taken at a distance of about about 25 metres and it was unclear whether it was actually David because the face was so blurry. I'm so ashamed of myself from that period of my life that uh, finding pictures... Yeah, you sent uh, some quite deep, profound messages on our WhatsApp yeah. group about your life back then. It was it was an, an I was, interesting I was a bit period. worried about sending you into the garage to <laughs> sort through more photos of that period. You and me thought both. You, you might never emerge from that dark <laughs> yeah. hole of shame. I love how you're just sort of wearing the nineties in that in that photo <laughs> yeah. that you did that you did it's come up like with Chicago Bulls. Someone had and said WWF. we need a photo for the dictionary under nineties. David, what what can you do? It's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> well, what can I say? Um my memories of that period. Uh, tennis-wise, are rather happier than of my own life, uh, more generally. So let's go back, shall we, and uh, relive Rome from 1992, uh, a year in which the Barcelona Olympics took place. Bill Clinton was elected president of the United States of America. Vinyl records were withdrawn from shops because of the rise of compact discs and audio cassettes. And Carolina Pliskova, Heather Watson and Jack Sock were born. I mean, th- that's a broad rundown of things that took place in 1992. But in Rome, which is the, the tournament we're reliving, because that would have been final weekend just gone, I found, I mean, I found it so interesting to look at the role of honour of that tournament, which has always been such a good form guide for the for Roland Garros. I think it's the, it's the tournament that people tend to view as the most relevant don't they because the the clay is similar the the conditions feel quite similar certainly compared to at that time when Hamburg was going on and that was often cold and heavy Andre Medvedev always used to win it because he could just sort of hit through it um 
and more recently that's been replaced by Madrid, which is is played at altitude and has got that slightly weird atmosphere inside the Caya Magica. And and as a result of all that, Rome was always the one, wasn't it? And I think in many of the years you can see a correlation between the two. And yet here we are watching over the weekend Gabriella Sabatini taking on Monica Selesh in the final peak Selesh, who had who had already won. What had she won that year, Matt? Uh, what was her role of honour at the Grand Slams? Well, she'd won four of the last five slams, and she was in the middle of a run of reaching 33 finals out of 34 tournaments that she played from 1991 to 1993. You know, she just... She was the clear number one in the world, and, yeah, she just wasn't really losing many matches at all. Mm. And yet Sabatini had won... Three of the last four titles. She'd beaten Sellis in the final of the year before. I also watched some highlights of that uh, earlier in the day over the weekend. And and I mean, they, they were very, very similar matches. Both matches she won in straight sets. And both sets of the the match we saw, she came from behind. But I don't know. I, I You tell me, Catherine. I couldn't take my eyes off Sabatini's tennis. Maybe it was partially because we knew we were covering her as as our point of of interest in the, in this particular show but you just get sort of drawn to her i mean you were you were probably too young to remember her tennis and understand tennis at that age but having relived it now what did you what did you think i remember her hair i remember asking my mum to do a french plait in the style of Gabriella Sabatini. I was mostly in tennis for the plats at that stage. I had the <laughs> Capriati double plat and the uh, um, Sabatini French plat. Um, I'd like to think my, my tastes have become slightly more sophisticated over the years. Um, she's She she is and was completely magnetic, wasn't she? Um, it, it's funny, even as you say, she was down in, in both sets. Even when she was down... She was so clearly the better player. I mean, I'm looking forward to to watching um, some matches over the French and Wimbledon where where Monica Sellers was was totally in her in her pomp and uh, showing all the brilliance that that led to that that run that that Matt described. Because frankly, in this match that we watched yesterday, she was just second best throughout. She was completely outclassed by Gabriella Sabatini. She looked. She was made to look pretty lumbering at times by the touch and the variety of Sabatini. She really instantly, she, it, she reminded me of uh, Amelie Moresmo. It, it was, it was a really stark um, comparison for me. That sort of, the power is there, um, but it's, deployed very sparingly quite often it's it's heavy topspin moon balls with um knifed slice shown in lovely uh, thrown in lovely touch at the net but but yeah the ability to inject pace um at will and obviously the the single-handed backhand comparison as well i i didn't really know that that was how she played her tennis i guess i just thought um I know her slam came at um, at the US Open, but in my head, sort of clay court specialist from South America, you you get a picture in your mind of the the brand of tennis they're likely to play. And goodness me, she was so much more than that. What did you think, Matt, watching what we witnessed? 
Well, I'd read a quote from Sabatini saying that she loves watching Ash Barty. And to then watch Sabatini play, that quote immediately made so much sense. The variety in, in Sabatini's game, I... I found it most fascinating the way she was able to use her slice on the clay as such a weapon. And in particular against Selesh, the fact that she made Selesh have to take her second hand off the racket and hit the ball with just with just her left hand. Obviously, Selesh famously double-handed on both sides. That was how she was most comfortable hitting the ball. But so many times in this match, um, Sabatini actually used the slice to get a to get a softer reply from from Celeste having to take that hand off and then use the forehand to sort of maneuver her around the court um and then obviously that obviously the other thing that stood out was the connection that she had with the fans i think it's interesting how we said this was her fourth fourth title in rome sometimes when a player is so dominant the crowd can actually get you know, can feel a bit apathetic towards it. They kind of want a new champion, but there was no sense of that with Sabatini whatsoever. They absolutely loved her. Um, as you said, that this um, show actually coincides with the weekend Sabatini celebrated her 50th birthday, kind of coincidentally for us, really. But there's been a lot of articles about Sabatini. It's just been fascinating. And this match is actually featured in a lot of those articles. It feels like a defining moment in her career. And I read... I read a line from La Nación, which is a newspaper in in Argentina, which said that the the centre court at the Foro Italico transformed into Gabby Landia, and when she played, there was a special magnetism that radiated from the court. And even just watching on the screen, you can kind of feel feel that presence that she had on the court. So those were the those were certainly the things that most most struck me. She was the perfect player for them. In many ways, wasn't she? And she fed off their energy as well. It seemed to me. She you know she's not a she's not a demonstrative player in terms of milking crowds or 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 orchestrating or anything like that. But at the same time, that some of the the nonchalance at the net, for instance, when she would she would come in and set up volleys for herself mm. and have total faith in her ability to just hit a, an exquisite touch shot and it seemed to me she was almost overdoing the nonchalance more than she needed to just because she knew the crowd would love that and because she could and because it it looked like it it came as easily to her to, to hit a a deft drop volley dug out from her feet as to to hit a simple forehand put away as as my dad would put it she was she was hitting 3 euro shots when 1 euro shots would have been enough but she was she was making them every time it was you know some of them were almost you know no look half volleys weren't they it was yeah staggering that's, that's it actually yeah it was if there wasn't the kind of um showboating in a in an in your face way she wasn't trying to trying to embarrass uh Selesh, but she was just showing how good she is she was letting every it was i suppose it's like a player with that kind of game who's just in the zone and feeling it and is going to show you and there's something so amazing about not only beating a player of Selesh's quality in her prime but doing it with style doing it memorably not just not completely catching Selesh on a bad day. She she imposed her own game and made Selesh, as you said, look a little bit 
um, cumbersome at times. As as John McEnroe said after his 1983 Wimbledon final win over Chris Lewis, I won it the way they wanted me to win it. Mm. Also, I, I think there are some kind of parallels to draw about her against Selish with players that play against Djokovic today, who has this relentlessness and how are you on earth going to stop him and make him kind of malfunction? And there's one or two players that absolutely on their best day, maybe not even for the full duration of a match, but for periods have the ability, have the variety to just mess him up and, and be able to take him out of his comfort zone. We saw, we'll go on to Federer in a little while from that find against Nadal. He had the same challenge against Nadal on clay, but Sabatini just could not have executed her game plan better and she's done she's basically won four sets in a row against her in Rome uh, in the final and as as we were saying we were watching the match and we were just kind of drooling about her tennis and yet she was 4-1 down <laughs> and it didn't feel like that no it it never felt like she was down in the score did it and she she made she made Monica Sellers look pretty limited in that match. I mean, from from quite early on, Monica Sellers had a real dejection about her, and as we've said, that the the magnetism of Gabriella Sabatini it almost seemed to draw all of the the aura that you would have expected Monica Sellers to to have with her her ranking and prowess at the time. You could you could see her shrink. You could feel her shrink on that court because Sabatini was just drawing everything towards her and in, into her orbit, and it was it was very strange to think that you're watching the 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 world number one, the dominant player out there, because you just didn't didn't look it during that match, did you? If an alien had dropped from space and it was just watching that tennis match and was asked to say, "Who's the?" the world number one and favourite for everything at the moment, you would you would absolutely say Sabatini. What, what a shame that she didn't play for longer. Yeah, well, that, that's right. She retired at the age of 26. Uh, what would it have been? Four years later, which, which is quite jarring to think about. And uh, we will be covering another one of her great matches during Wimbledon, actually. Uh, we, we've already picked it out. Um, so we won't go too deep into that just at the moment. There's plenty to, to be going on with. But yeah, it was a short career. I mean, that's the same age as, as Bjorn Borg retired for the first time, at least. But there's never been a comeback from Sabatini and never a suggestion of one either. She was... She was Roger Federer's childhood crush, I read in a uh, piece that Simon Briggs did on her um, late last week. But she's only 12 years older than Federer. <laughs> you know, mm. it's because of because of how young she retired. You think of someone, you think of her as someone from, you know, way, way back when. She hasn't been in our consciousness for, for so long. Maybe she's been doing punditry broadcast work in Argentina, but she's certainly not to to my knowledge and consciousness been around tennis and as as you've pointed out in a couple of shows recently david unless you're unless you're in the greatest of all time debate or you hold a record that a current player is chasing or you're somebody that keeps themselves relevant by sort of saying controversial things about current tennis you get forgotten you get yeah. forgotten, and the longer ago your achievements achievements were, the the more that's the case. And and Eve, she's only just turned fifty, but somehow it feels like she's in tennis's distant past, which is yeah. 
it's such and a it's, shame. It's been one of the nice things, actually, of this weekend. Her turning 50 has made everybody remember her. There have been, as you say, lots of profiles, lots of the greats of the game remembering her. It was actually Steve Tigner, whose piece about her becoming turning 50 gave me that line. It was his line, to be fair. If you're not in the GOAT discussion, you're lucky to be in the discussion at all. And But it, what it did for me is it did jog my memory because you do, I, I, I have just suppressed so many tennis memories from that period of the time. And, and as we, we laugh about how I recall all this stuff from the 90s. It's because I'd got kind of almost coronavirus-type time available to me because I wasn't the faintest bit interested in my studies <laughs> and so all I was doing was watching tennis and I've got all this stuff that just came bubbling up to the surface when I was watching this match just before I get on to that though Matt that the, there was a moment in the match a couple of times when we all just laughed out loud because of the service return position <laughs> that Sabatini was taking up describe that well, yeah, Selesh was serving on the on the deuce side and I think almost the best way to be able to describe it is that Sabatini was returning from almost the ad side. She'd stepped so far across to get the ball on her forehand for the return. It was like it was like intimidation tactics, mind game tactics. And, yeah, I've never seen a return of serve position like that. It was like they were in a straight line down the middle of the court, the way they were both stood, Selish serving and Sabatini returning. And she did this multiple times. But the funny thing was, it wasn't like she would then tee off on the return and smack this forehand winner. She would play an aggressive shot, but she didn't really have that massive, powerful forehand in her arsenal. It was all, it was all in the mind games of saying sort of tempting Selesh to to hit a harder serve than she normally would and yeah it just it just worked a treat and it's just a demonstration of how much she was thinking out there and how and how clever her her tennis was what I loved about it was that she was creeping up as well Mm. she was sort of tiptoeing as she did it as though can you see me? I'm just, I'm just going <laughs> to creep up to this service line now. Hello, can you, I'm just in your peripheral vision here. You want to serve out there because I'm going to absolutely leather this if you don't. Um, and, and of course, as you say, she really didn't have that sort of explosive game, but it was very, very funny to watch. I've, I've not seen a court position quite like that before. I remember Tim Hemman used to do quite a lot of moving around on the return and I never felt it worked for him at all. It was sort of, <laughs> you know, he, he used to kind of, move in a, a in a, a lateral way just when the player was about to serve which I'm not really sure you you're supposed to do by the rules he did a little sort of gentle skip didn't yeah. he from sides it was very 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 gentle and I got I tended to get the sense that the player down the other end was going what are you doing <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you think that's going to put me off I mean come on um but Sabatini back then I mean, that was right in my wilderness years of uh, of lack of direction. But my word... You're really did... making me worried about David Law circa 1992, David. Well, yeah, There's, there was plenty to be worried about, <laughs> I can tell you. Um, but You've gone really dark. <laughs> watching Sabatini play the other day, just, just watching it back, reminded me that I feel like she almost sort of... She didn't teach me how to play tennis because I can't play tennis, really. But she taught me how to watch tennis. She taught me how strokes work. She taught me how the options, what you can do on a court. And 
I feel like the difference was in this match, there was a real purpose to every stroke. Sometimes if you watched old Sabatini matches, and it may be just because I was so young in my in my watching of it and not really understanding it yet, it was almost like I, I would play tennis computer games and think of Sabatini strokes because I would think, right, if I move it here, I can hit a topspin backhand. Or if I'd move it that way, diagonally on the joystick, I can hit a slice backhand. And I would almost just do it for, entertain- for entertaining myself just to see what, what happens if I do a topspin and what happens if I do a slice. And when you watch Sabatini at times, I kind of feel like that's almost going through her head. I've got, I could do anything with this ball. I could hit a moon ball. I could hit a nice short backhand slice. None of them will be fast enough to go for winners, but my word, did they look beautiful when they're just sort of painting the court like this. Midway through the second set, she started drawing Selesh into moon balling, didn't she? Yes. And it was such a strange sight. I wondered if it was even intentional. Um, but by that point, I think Selesh was just completely frazzled by uh, by the whole experience of playing Sabatini. She looks like the sort of player that would have made a great coach because she so clearly mm. has this, this m- mental understanding of the game, this instinctive understanding of the game. I mean, maybe that's a, a misunderstanding or a misconception of what makes a good coach because actually when, it, when it's instinctive like that, that possibly makes the it more difficult to impart to another person because oh it just mm. comes naturally to me why can't you do it um but she she certainly on the face of it looks like the sort of player that would that would make a really great coach because she just clearly has this understanding of of court craft and i think having read up about it it sounds like she really taught herself in a way how to play at the net when she when she came through on the tour, she was basically just a baseliner with these quite loopy ground strokes that maybe couldn't cause that much damage. But she realised that she needed more in her game and she had the ability to play tuck shots, to to sort of know instinctively how to cover the net. And, and then she taught herself to use it, which just shows a great, a great tennis mind that I think she had. Um, the point you made, David, about, well, that you've both made about how she's kind of been lost a bit from tennis tennis's consciousness i i find it that at the time if you were following sabatini that that would have seemed unfathomable because just how popular she was how much of a big deal she was and you know she probably doesn't have the slam record more than anything to that that would keep her in that conversation but the achievement she did have that you know she beat Steffi Graf more than anyone beat Steffi Graf okay she lost a lot to Steffi Graf but she got a lot of wins um she got an Olympic silver medal she obviously won the US Open I just think there's there's such a story there and I, I was really I was really pleased to see actually that she is still such a big deal in Argentina I think she was a very important player for Argentina I think you know she burst through she reached the well she won Roland Garros juniors in 1984 and that was just a year after a dictatorship had ended in Argentina and I think a lot of the articles I was reading just made the point that they were ready for new possibilities new new people in Argentina and she was that person and people gravitated towards her and that has that has stayed maybe maybe she's been lost slightly in tennis history but in Argentina she stayed. She's got national treasure status there, really. Oh, Matt, you've hit my sweet spot. History, history plus sport. Yeah, mine too. Oh. Mine too. <laughs> and I think actually that's what 
when I watch these matches, especially something like 1992, you've talked about the passage of time. And it really wobbled me a bit to think that it's 24 years ago that she retired. Such a long time, isn't it? It sounds like such a long time. And yet I remember this this period so vividly. And I suppose because I was going through a period of my life of just not really knowing what I wanted to be or anything like that or, or what the point was or anything. But I fell in love with tennis and that's what defines the kind of path that my life would take. Um, I, I just find it really, really cool that, that she's come to the forefront again. And, and it, uh, talking, we talked to Mary Carrillo over the weekend about her as well. She reminded us how Sabatini grasped her opportunity only once at a Grand Slam to win a Grand Slam. That was the 1990 US Open. And she did it by, as you say, Matt, le- not only learning how to play at the net, but forcing it upon the opponent. Mm. She she suddenly changed her her line of attack and stopped faffing around from the baseline and showing all these wonderful options and used it a bit like she did in this match against Selesh to hurt the opponent. She beat Steffi Graf in that 1990 US Open final, despite basically winning one in three matches against her over the course of her career, just imposed herself on Steffi Graf. And, uh, I mean, aside from that, she was a a remarkably successful and consistent player. I think she reached 18 Grand Slam semifinals, but only won one title. And there were a lot of moments in her career, I think, when at the absolutely defining moment – she would come unstuck. The serve would get attacked. There was a, a really bad loss in 1993 at the at the French Open against Mary Jo Fernandez when she was 6-1, 5-1 ahead and match point and ended up losing. I mean, you, I, I would never get over that. <laughs> yeah. it ever. Was, it was painful to watch. How do you ever get to a stage where you're not thinking about that every minute of every day? Yeah. <laughs> Just to take this rivalry with Selesh onwards a little bit they then played in the French Open final after this row match and she led 4-2 Sabatini in the final set and lost um, that was in the semis before in the semis, that sorry. Uh, match yeah. against Graf wasn't it yeah, yeah. Um, and to think you know we've talked about how Sabatini just looked like the better player in that match against Selesh that we just watched to think she would never beat Selesh again. That was her final win oh, really? against Selesh. And it, wow. I, I've seen, I've seen a lot of things this weekend, um, celebrating Arsenal's invincibles beating Leicester on the final day. And then people saying, imagine walking out of that stadium, being told that Leicester would win the league before Arsenal again. It's hmm. kind of, it's kind of like that <laughs> with, with, uh, Selesh and Sabatini. Once you've seen that match, you think, well, Sabatini, how can she not, win loads more and come come to dominate maybe this rivalry but just doesn't just doesn't work out that way mm. just one more point on the kind of poignancy of it we watched the closing ceremony and um this is more a Selesh point but the but the interviewer said to Monica Selesh who when you when you saw her interview you saw how young she was that she was still a teenager and they said um we'll see you next year which, as as Catherine said, now that's such a haunting, haunting line because, of course, Selesh didn't didn't make it to Rome the next year. She was the match where she was stabbed was a, a couple of weeks before, and yet at Rome in 1993, players were asked 
what to do about Selish's ranking, whether it should be frozen, number one. And I'm not sure whether this was known at the time. All the sources I've heard have cited Selish's autobiography for this for this line and that Sabatini was the only player who abstained from voting. The WTA wanted to freeze the ranking, but for some reason they asked the players and lots and all the top players apart from Sabatini and Graf, who wasn't there, but all the others said, no, it shouldn't be frozen. And in the end, her ranking wasn't frozen. But Sabatini objected to that. And Selesh, you know, has talked about how much how much she appreciates Sabatini for for that moment, for thinking as a as a person, as a human, rather than just focusing on the rankings and the business side of things. Um, just, I thought it was an interesting how, just how they stayed mm. connected in that way after this match. Yeah, that's an amazing, an, uh, an amazing um, <clears throat> thing to remember. And I mean, that what, what an episode in t- tennis's history, obviously not just the horrific thing that happened to Monica Sellers, but those, those chapters that unfolded afterwards i didn't know about that why why were the players asked that's like asking turkeys to vote for christmas isn't it or not to vote for christmas it's it's yeah that's a strange and eerie chapter in tennis history and it it really um it really hit me in the gut when uh when she was asked i think the 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 questioner just says so you'll come back and get revenge on the center court next year then she says yeah with a bit of luck i hope so yeah it's hard to hear isn't it um mary said of sabatini that as somebody who dealt with her really liked her said she was not a quote machine but she was just just really she had a really nice way about her she and i i found her her view of of why Rome took to her so much, mm. quite interesting. This is what Mary said. She says, Italians loved Sabatini and claimed her as one of her one of their own. They did the same with Agassi. I think the Italian Open is one of the most emotional tournaments in the world, at least when she covered it. And um, in as much as the, the, they, would, they would pick certain players and they'd go crazy for them. Panatta, obviously. Um, Vitas Gerolaitis, the, they, they loved as well. Um, people that loved... Rome, they loved back, and it was it was that kind of relationship. Yeah, well, Djokovic has an amazing relationship with with the with the fans there. Um, I mean, he's he speaks Italian, he's got a relationship with Italy. Serena Williams as well has has developed mm. this really um, emotive relationship with Rome because it's where she met her husband, and she she made the effort to to speak a bit of Italian, I think, to to the fans. And yeah, it's of course Sabatini has. Um, Italian heritage as well, which um, a lot of Argentines do. It's it's an Italian sounding name, I think. Um, so that would have helped, but certainly it goes it goes far beyond that. The the connection that she has with that crowd, it's like, yeah, it's something sort of Del Potro esque, isn't it? It's just can't quite put your finger on. It's it's impalpable, mm. but it's it's undeniably there. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips and adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. So that was 1992. Let's fast forward to 2006 and... Roger Federer is dominating all before him in tennis generally. Rafael Nadal is dominating all before him on that particular surface and also dominating the head-to-head between himself and Roger Federer so far because looking at the stats of that year is, I think, one of the most hard-hitting moments in tennis history certainly recently just the 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 extremes that we're talking about I think Nadal was with the victory that he would have against Federer in that final he would break Guillermo Vilas's record for consecutive match wins on clay and Federer I think had a record for the year of 92 wins and five defeats and he only lost to two players and one of them was Andy Murray in a single match. The other four defeats were all against Nadal. 
and it just had everything really when you when we came to watch this match i realized i had never seen it before i'd he- i'd obviously heard about it i'd seen match point i'd seen the celebration but i happened to be getting married the day before uh, <laughs> that particular final so i was unable to watch tennis for for one weekend of my life and um so to to actually go back in time and watch this this contest between nadal really early on in his career. I mean, he'd won the 2005 French Open uh, and then was coming in as the as the big favourite to to do it again. He'd, he'd just, he would just sweep everybody before him on that particular surface, and yet Federer was at his absolute peak at the same time. And, I mean, even re-watching it, it had that feel of the heavyweight championship of the world, the, the two best players on the planet, and... Nobody knows until the very last ball who's going to win. I mean, it's five hours and fifteen minutes, something like that. Um, and it was just, and it lived up to it. I absolutely was hanging on it in that, particularly in that final set. And it was tense right from the word go, which at the start of a a, a five set match is is rarely rarely the case. The crowd and the players were just a hundred percent dialed in right from the word go you, you just sort of I mean obviously we had the benefit of hindsight but you just had the feel of an epic on the first point um and it, it, it the the commentator Jason Goodall described um them as arch rivals um at midway through the match and I thought well at this stage I think Matt they had only actually met once in a grand slam mm-hmm. that's right yeah um it was really, really early days in their in their rivalry. Roger Federer was Nadal had won the one Grand Slam at the French Open the previous year, and Federer was the completely dominant player. They had not developed into anything like the arch rivals that we know them to be now. So it's, it's a comment that's obviously aged incredibly, incredibly well. And he was he was right somehow, even though the numbers didn't yet back it up at that stage it still felt you could just tell that they were meant to be together on the court they sort of completed one another Mm. um it was it felt like an incredibly special match and and quite a potentially defining match in their in their arch rivalry yeah it's it just shows how early nadal was on Federer's case really um and I yeah I think it I think it is a an interesting and important match because for me I see it as a what if you know if Federer had won this match he had two match points I'm sure we'll get into the match more but he had two match points to win in the fifth set and didn't take them he missed four hands on both and if if Federer I mean we'll never know the answer to this but if Federer had managed to get a win early in his career against Nadal on clay how that could have potentially changed the way that they that their rivalry would then unfold, particularly at Roland Garros for the next few years. You know, Federer has still never won three sets on clay against Nadal in a match. He's never done it. And this was the closest he came. And that's that's the fascination that this was best of five on a very similar surface to Roland Garros. Mm-hmm warm conditions bit windy it had it had nadal's perfect conditions on it and federer nearly won and federer was the better player at that stage 
on on that day, even even on clay, Roger Federer was the better tennis player. I mean, the, the that was Federer. I mean, he's he's added things to his game. Obviously, most notably, particularly against Nadal, the the the, the his backhand has improved, or his ability or confidence in taking the backhand early. But at that stage, Federer is pretty much in his pomp, the complete tennis player. He's got everything. Nadal is rough around the edges. He's he's brilliant you can see all of the raw materials but he's he's the shadow he's the shadow of the player that he ended up developing into really Federer was the better tennis player then and really ought to have he ought to have won and he knew it he was crestfallen afterwards It, it was such a such a simple problem he had against Nadal but seemingly had such a complex solution I just remember him not being able to figure it out for so long and this was probably the match where he came closest I think his backhand actually did actually held up pretty well in this match I in my mind I picture their early clay court matches as Nadal pinning Federer in the backhand corner and Federer's backhand not really making it past the service line and Nadal you're waiting for the one way goes down the line and just hits it into the space but in this Federer's Federer's backhand stood up pretty well he hit his forehand well throughout the match apart from just when he needed to and he got to the net he came to the net 84 times on clay I mean I know it was a long match but his commitment to coming forward he was executing most of the time he just wasn't quite executing when he needed to and those were the moments when Nadal raised his game and he he would not miss in those crucial moments they both sort of had these this limitless number of gears that they could seemingly go into and Nadal would save time his for the biggest moments and Federer wouldn't necessarily and when Nadal was dialed in Federer became a little bit confused it became less less sort of instinctive tennis you could see him thinking about it more and Ultimately, those those are little moments that that made the difference in this absolutely epic match. It, it was clear that Nadal was already in his head For at sure. that stage because it, in the it, actually Federer's backhand was at its worst in the first set. It was like he walked onto the court thinking. I, uh, my backhand isn't up to to the pressure Nadal's going to apply. So he started doing strange strange chip type shots on on the backhand, which just obviously weren't going to get the job done. He was running around onto the forehand, and actually, once he sort of I'm not sure quite what clicked it into gear. Once he started believing in the backhand and and thinking thinking that it could stand up to the scrutiny, it. By and large, it did. As Matt said, I was quite surprised by how well it stood up. But it's funny that in the first set, um, it was it was when he seemed to have no confidence in it at all. It indicated that he must have walked onto court with mental baggage about the way Nadal exposed exposes his backhand, um, which you know at that early stage in their rivalry is is amazing to think. That uh, that turning around of rivalries is one of the great features of Federer's career and one I've always been fascinated by. If you go back right to the beginning, he had a really heavy deficit against Tim Henman. He had a very heavy reverse scoreline in the head-to-head against Agassi and Leighton Hewitt and David Nalbandian. Mm. And he turned them all around. I mean, we're talking multiple defeats, sort of six, one, six down and things like that in those sort of head to heads. And he turned all of them around. And I remember reporting on him back then. I remember going to 
the tournament in Dubai, for instance, that year, I was covering that tournament and they met each other in the final. And I remember distinctly thinking, right, okay, Nadal's got these wins against Federer on clay. He beat him in the French Open semis last year. He won't do it on hard court. Nadal's game is not transferable onto that surface. And I'd seen enough losses from Nadal on on hard court against players like Andy Roddick and people like that to think that Federer is just going to make mincemeat out of him on the surface and he didn't he he Federer started I think Federer might have started like a train and got about five love up in the first set in Dubai and ended up losing in three and that really rocked me really surprised me um given how well Federer was playing I think he was unbeaten that year until that match and then they would played each other in Monte Carlo on clay that was four sets two weeks earlier then they came in and played this match and it was the moment that I agree with you. I think it could well have been a crossroads for Federer in terms of turning that rivalry around. Maybe not. I mean, he he beat him in Hamburg the following year, but that always felt different. That was best of three sets. It was heavy clay. Nadal had already won everything and was clearly not quite there and Federer was going all out. This was the one. This was the one where they, they were both at kind of ground zero and, and and ready to to find out who's the best and Federer chucked everything at him he won the first set seven love on a tie break lost the next two and I thought his performance in the fourth set in getting him back was really something to because I I mean normally you tended to feel that in that rivalry once Nadal got the upper hand in the match two sets to one or or whatever leveled a match that that's it on clay and and Federer did a, did a fantastic job and I just found it really interesting how how effective his game was and the forehand was really powerful and and dominating when he wanted to pull the trigger and then as you say he gets himself two match points and there were really bad misses they were just they should not have happened for Roger Federer even when you know they're coming. <laughs> they make they make you wince and cringe a little bit. They made me think of uh, John Wertheim's poem. Mm. <laughs> that Matt read out to us. <laughs> Slash song. Song, Slash song, yes. Song converted into poem due to Matt's reluctance to sing <laughs> on the podcast. Yeah, uh, about anywhere, him having, having no nerve, which obviously is a total exaggeration, but he he blew it. He blew it and he, he knew that he blew it. I was going to say he blew it and he knew it. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, I mean, I ended up saying it anyway. Um, but yeah, it was, it was writ large on his face that he... We're such, we're, we've got such levels of extreme here, haven't we? Because Roger Federer, I think, has won over a thousand matches. He's won 20 slam singles titles. He knows how to finish matches off. I mean, that that much is clear. And yet... We've got those that record of him losing matches from match point up. And even in this match as a microcosm, the moment Nadal got his chance to finish the match, there was none of this missing. Now, I know he plays with a, a greater margin for error, etc. But it feels to me on the whole, Nadal, and I've seen him choke just that once maybe in the Wimbledon final of 08. But generally speaking, he just knuckles down Plan A, I'm going to keep on pounding away and I'm not going to miss and eventually I'll get my way. And Federer does have 
a capacity to to miss and to to lose more so on when it's when it's when he's done the hard work when he's on the brink mm. it's one of the great paradoxes of his career as you say the fact that he has won so much and yet he has got this this record this was one of 22 matches that he's lost from match point up but i i do think a large part of it is game styles federer's federer's game as you said it's it's so high risk you know that those those two match points certainly the second one he really went for it on the forehand and high risk tennis is not built for pressure moments it's incredible it just goes to show how incredible he is that he's managed to win so much with a with a game style that perhaps you know is risky and doesn't favor him at the important moments um He's obviously executed a lot more times than he's than he's fluffed it up. But when he does make a mess of it, it really really does stand out. Um, I was so glad this match stood up to the test of time. You know, this this did a bit like the way you were talking about 1992 being formative years for you with tennis. This is very much it for me. I have I have a vivid memory of the playground at school. Actually, what did you do at the weekend? Oh, I watched a five-hour tennis match, and it was this one. Um, I think I would probably say the 2008 Wimbledon final to non-tennis fans is the kind of match that most sticks out from my childhood of watching tennis. But to tennis fans, I would point to this one because they would they would probably know what I meant. And it really did stand up. Other than the, other than a lull in the second set, the quality was sustained. The drama and what we've said, the way it the way it told the stories of who Federer and Nadal were as tennis players, both at that point in their careers and also what they would develop into. Um, it's, just, it's just a perfect microcosm. At that stage, Matt, did you own the um, three-quarter length trousers oh, yeah. and sleeveless? You did, okay. No, I, I'm not sure I ever had a sleeveless um, Nadal shirt. Yeah. I was aware even then that that would have looked ridiculous. You had the trousers, well, had but the trousers. not the... If only John McEnroe had been aware. <laughs> Uh, the, the a couple of things that that occurred to me watching it, I, just the sheer fascination with Federer, who who did already feel to me like the greatest player I'd ever seen, and he he'd, he'd only won half a dozen slams by then. I know that's that's still a lot, but he hadn't won anything like what he would go on to win. But he felt like the greatest player I'd ever seen, and watching him try to decode Nadal mm. on that surface, and and him. And his self-belief still, okay, maybe he wobbled just at that last second, but he backed himself without what he would develop later with Edberg and Ivan Lubicic. He, he hadn't yet got that, right, I'm going to just crowd the court and not move from the baseline and just take everything on and just take your time away. Back then, he was happy to trade. He was backing his ability from behind the baseline with his movements and his in his clay court game to take on Nadal. He was still thinking that that would maybe get the job done. And it shows what an incredible clay court player he was that he never got really the credit for because he was always up against Nadal. Um, and, I, and I don't know, I just feel like it just defines them as players and their, and, and equally the fact that Nadal was taking on this absolute colossus on everything and yet he still had the the ability on that surface, and he would eventually develop it on others as well to to be the to be the man to be the kryptonite yeah, and to think that 
that he he was he was the man at that stage and he was only 19 and and as i referenced earlier really a shadow of the player he ended up being i mean at that stage nadal's serve is a dolly clay court serve his first and second serves are pretty much the same speed he's just he's just getting the rally started that's he got it the first one in more than 80 percent of the time in all five sets as you say, we're just starting the rallies. It's just starting the rallies. No ambition to do anything more with it. And actually, I think Federer should have been more aggressive on the mm. return. He he basically only jumped around his backhand once in the match, and it was in the final set tiebreak when he did it, and he was really aggressive, and he won the point. And this goes back to what I was saying. He just he had the he had the answers in his game, as you were saying. He was the more complete player. He just couldn't quite figure out how to deploy it at the right time, whereas Nadal made the absolute most of what he had. And that was just so cool to see Nadal just come good in those big moments. He did it time after time, and especially against Federer. And I just remember being just in awe of how how he was able to do it. And just seeing a 19-year-old, a I mean, obviously it helped that he was a 19-year-old that had delivered, he had won a Grand Slam type title, but just own the court against against the world number one and the guy that people were already talking about is is the potential greatest of all time even even back then you know the the roundhouse fist pumps the the double mm. the double jumping air fist pumps he, so cool, wasn't he? he was so cool and he 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 wasn't afraid to to own the court and to and to dominate aura wise, um, which so many of the young players that we we hype um, and sort of have to hype and sometimes justifiably hype and sometimes not, they just they don't have even a fraction of what what Nadal had as a as so a young player. As well. Yeah. It was all within. It wasn't there was no show, there was no putting it on for effect. It was just coming exploding out of him as 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 he felt it. Um Harvey Araton in the New York Times wrote in a headlined piece that said Federer Nadal starting to have that Frazier Alley ring. His intro says Nadal has dropped into Federer's space like a boulder onto a bridge sent by the competition gods to be the litmus test for tennis immortality. Oh. <laughs> That's good. There was, there was some aggro as well, wasn't there, Matt? I think I missold the aggro because there wasn't really aggro during the match. The aggro unfolded in comments after the match where Federer, uh, well, he accused Tony Nadal of, uh, sorry, Uncle Tony, of doing <laughs> uh, Moritoglu-style courtside coaching. I, I was watching hoping that I had remembered correctly that there was mid-match on-court aggro, but in but but alas, no, it was all very convivial. But afterwards, Federer had a had a bit of a pop. Yeah, he said, uh, "I've I've I've told him many times already through the entire match in Monte Carlo to stop coaching, but it seems like they don't keep a close enough eye on him." Um, and it was funny because the because the question <laughs> was actually fed. because the question was actually. 
framed as um, I heard you say something to Tony, and they and the it, the, the journalist was referring to Tony Roach. He thought he he picked <laughs> up on Federer saying something to his coach, and Federer was like, "No, no, that was for Tony Nadal." Um, <laughs> <laughs> sort of interesting, just misunderstanding there. But what you were saying about Fraser Alley is another point that it felt like it felt like more than a match. It felt like an event. It felt like something you just had to watch at the time. I was just. Just looking at their record, they played a five-set match, Federer and Nadal, every year, at least one, for five straight years, from 2005 to 2009. And every single one, you just felt like you had to watch it because maybe this, maybe on clay, this would be the moment that Federer would beat Nadal, or on grass, this would be the moment that Nadal would beat Federer. Hard court, they were more even. And there was just that storyline that just followed them and has followed them throughout their career. And it was really born in, in these 2005, 2006 years. Just, it's just so good to go back and watch them. Another cracking atmosphere, wasn't it, as well? Mm. Oh. It's, just, it's intoxicating. You feel, you feel it's, there's a kind of hysteria about it all. You feel as though you're a bit drunk on it. You, don't wanna, you just don't want to leave. You're like you're in the pub having the best time and you don't want the night to end. From the very, very first moment, it it was like it was like the start of a, a, a theatre show or something. It was just hush descended, and it was electric from the first moment. It was just there is no way that this cannot be a good match. You're not worried. I mean, obviously, I'm watching this with hindsight, but I'm I you know I did watch it live, and I I it there's just there's no worry that it'll disappoint that that you know as we were talking about with with the worst ever grand slam finals is it worse when one's been massively hyped and it ends <laughs> up being utter crap or is it worse when you're expecting one to be crap and it's crap it's that anxiety that you you desperately want and hope and think something's going to be brilliant and it ends up not being and you just there was none of that anxiety for this match it just didn't seem conceivable that it would disappoint. And that is the best thing about going to sport, isn't it? Live sport where there's an expectation before it starts, it just hangs in the air. In fact, it's not just sport, as you said, it's theatre, it's music concerts. And then out of nothing, there's nothing. And then suddenly it's all there in front of you. And there was just this, this appreciation for both players. It was, it was, it's, maybe they slightly wanted Federer to win, I think perhaps by the end, but it felt just fair, even support for both players and just an appreciation of what they were both bringing to the court and a recognition that it was a special rivalry developing. It, and it was quite interesting from a, an evolution of uh, Nadal's pre-serve routine mm. um, point of view as well, because it was quite primitive back then the pre-serve fidgeting it's kind of a devolution and an evolution he's lost the <laughs> yeah. he's lost the way he picks at his shoes and socks he doesn't do that anymore and yet that was the main part of his routine back then and yet he's developed all this ticks with his face and touching his ears and his nose and his ears and his nose and his ears and his nose several times before he serves but there was none of that back then no it was mostly centered on the socks matt and i were were fast forwarding through the the change of ends to just to shave a bit of time off the off the rewatch um and so we would sync up at the start of uh after every sit down and every time i paused to sync up 
uh, Nadal was bending over, adjusting <laughs> his socks every single time yeah. my screen seemed to be paused on Nadal bending over. Just one final thought from me about it. I, I remember when we covered Catherine the US Open final last year when Nadal played Medvedev. And I said at the time, he made me almost scared for him with how deep he had to dig, with how far he was prepared to go in order to win. And and watching him at the end of this match, s- sort of crouching down on his haunches and sitting down on his chair and putting his head in his hands, I saw then how much this takes for him to do it. You, you just get these little tells at, at the end of matches with Nadal. It's not put on, it's not... He manages to stay in this bubble of focus and intensity and present throughout these incredibly long periods of time. And then at the end, you can see him just collapse emotionally and, and physically and, and, and mentally. And, I, and I, I often worry for him almost uh, because I, I feel that normal human beings have a bit of a limiter on themselves as to how how hard they're willing to push before they think, oh, I'm not sure that's actually safe. I'm not sure that I will be able to handle that. And um, and it, yeah, I, I I'm I'm not able to do that in my life in my in things that I do, and I don't think most people are. And I think aside from his otherworldly ability, his preparedness to push himself through those pain barriers is is just mind blowing. It's funny, I was just going to say, if you ask me to name somebody else that doesn't have a limiter on themselves, I would say <laughs> David Law. I mean, maybe not, maybe not physically. <laughs> not in tennis. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, it, but in other respects, I'd say you, you do have that characteristic. Hence why we're doing 20 shows yeah. in about <laughs> three you just, weeks. You just go and go and go without giving it a second thought and then just drop dead (laughs) yeah there are times when Uh, you can email or text david at any time of the day (laughs) and you'll get a reply doesn't if you're in a different time zone or whatever david is always up (laughs) what you don't know is i've cloned myself (laughs) he was he was sobbing i think at the end of that match nadal Yeah. sobbing into his towel which and I think was a pretty arresting more, sight more than you really focus on I think that that happens there have been a couple of French Open finals when he's won and one or two when you're thinking well that looked quite straightforward but I think it discounts what it took to get him there sometimes getting over the injuries or the disappointments and the frustrations and all those sort of things and how much he must keep contained and then it just comes out and I love that about him. I love watching what it means to these players at the end. And also how aware he is of his own limits. You know, the next week he withdrew from Hamburg. So clearly, you know, he probably could have won Hamburg, but he knew that 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 Rome tournament has taken so much out of me. I now need to get ready for the French Open. We talk so much now about the big three in terms of their scheduling and how sensible they are with it. But I think even back then it was a it was something they were aware of and and did better than other people. Yeah, that that uh, Hamburg 2006 uh, <laughs> draw took qu- quite a hammering. I suspect the tournament organisers were watching that Rome final with their heads in their hands thinking no please end soon please end soon <laughs> um yeah. 
yeah, because I think it was a it was a it was a one three and three Robredo Stepanek final in Hamburg, which, with all due wow. respect to those two two players, is not. Who did he beat, Robredo? Five hours of Federer and Adult Stepanek, oh. that well known clay quarter. Blimey! And the, the semi finalists quite... were even weirder. Hang on a second. One I of them was look... Akasuso. Yes, Jose Akasuso. <laughs> who, who beat who beat top seed Ivan Lubacic 6-2, 6-love in like the second round or something? Yes. Wow. So it's, it's actually a really interesting draw. You've got uh, Andy Murray beating Guillermo Fis in round one and then losing to James Blake. You have got uh, Novak Djokovic. Um, qualifier. In, qualifier Novak Djokovic. Um, hang on a second. Beating Fernando Vadasco uh, in the no. Hang on a second. Sorry. Even possibly even better than that. You've got Novak Djokovic as a qualifier beating Guillermo Correa six three in the third in the opening round, and then losing to Fernando Vadasco in the second round. Wow. Um, but yes, the semifinals were <laughs> Robredo beating Ancic and Stepanek beating it, yeah. Jose Acasuso. Wow. <laughs> yes, <laughs> slightly different billing there. Yeah. Um, but there are probably some good matches and stuff. But you, Ma- you're right. I mean, as, as organisers, you, when, you, when you're a Masters 1000, which that was just the same as Rome, it, mm. that's a tough one to take. Max Mirny was a quarter finalist. I mean, these are not names that I associate with big clay court results. And they ended up switching them around dates-wise. If you look, and it's part of the reason why, because Rome was more similar to Roland Garros. Mm. And obviously Madrid ended up taking over. But the the view was that you're better off having Rome close to Roland Garros. Um, Robin Sodling was a, a lucky loser in the draw. Wow. I love looking back at these old draws. Yeah. Robin Sodling, who Matt's spoken to today. This as very part morning. Of our, uh, as part of our preparations for Roland Garros Relived, which all starts on Sunday, as we talk to you now. Next Sunday, we're going to be bringing you 15 podcasts in 15 days, looking back on the great moments. And we'll release all of our matches to you over the next couple of days to let you know what we're going to cover on which day, where you can watch them with us. And uh, yeah, we've spoken to so many different people. It's going to be it's going to be great. I hope you'll hope you'll enjoy it with us. So, uh, just before we f- uh, finish, I forgot to give you my 2006 trivia, guys. Um, the 2006 Football World Cup was held in Germany, won by Italy. Uh, it was the hottest month ever in Britain that year, in July. I remember that. Uh, Daniel Craig make, made his debut as James Bond in Casino Royale. Blu-ray discs were launched in the United States of America. And George W. Bush greeted Tony Blair with the phrase... Yo, Blair. Those things happen. What a strange in collection of facts. <laughs> well, that's what you come to the tennis podcast for when I'm presenting it, <laughs> uh, whether you like it or not. Uh, is there anything else, folks? Um, is there? Um, <laughs> if you if you buy me a bit of time, I can find some shout outs. <laughs> yeah, give me a shout out, Catherine. What were you doing in two thousand and six? Let's, let's just uh, remind um, ourselves. We know that my, well, my life was falling apart in nineteen ninety two. First half of it, I was just in my second year of uni, having a below average time. Uh, but the second half of it. <laughs> Um, I was on my year abroad uh, in La Réunion, 
in the Indian Ocean, an island oh, right, in the lovely. Indian Ocean. Uh, and it was great. Uh, it was technically studying, but uh, I did a module in surfing, I recall. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, module in surfing. I did uh, a module in something called aqua rondone, which literally translated means w- water hiking. But it's like jumping down waterfalls and stuff. It was great, put it that way. It was great. I mean, it kind of sounds it, yeah. I'm sorry. We, I feel bad now describing that while your life was falling apart. But I didn't know you at the time. And my my life had r- r- sort of got Back itself together, together again. Yes. Yeah, I was I was a married man. I'm sorry. It was it was it was 92 when your life yeah. was falling apart. I'd had a magnificent wedding in 2006, and I was very happy. So uh, it had just taken me the 14 years, you know. Uh, so <laughs> Matt. Uh, um matt was uh, about nine and uh and matt's got some shout outs oh is it a quick quiz sorry there is there is something else oh yeah of course there is because yes we're not going to come back on thursday folks i draw the line all right this is me pulling out a hamburg like nadal um we're, we're not doing a thursday well, show we are because, still doing two pods this week yes because we're doing one on sunday and the sunday one is amazing the sunday one you have got to listen to uh, because we're going to be featuring yannick noah's run to the title in 1983 and we've got a, a, a wonderful interview with him which we'll uh, we'll share some of that in that show and i I tell you, you do not want to miss that. Yeah. Speaking of cool, Yannick Noah. The coolest man I've ever met in my life, Barnon. And so, but before that, I am going to take on our predictions Kickstarter backers in a quiz and win. Mm. So I can't wait. And Catherine and Matt are running it. Because we're unable to obviously provide any tennis for our predictions kickstarter backers to predict i mean we could give you relived uh matches to predict but i i don't think that would be much of an enjoyable contest although people would have a chance of beating david um so matt and i are fulfilling our fantasies of being tennis quiz quiz masters (laughs) on saturday so uh the kickstarter backers will be coming at the king and that is the one and only time I will call you that, David. <laughs> so please, all um, quiz participants that are listening, start revising French Open history because I implore you, we need one of you to beat David, please. Yeah, emphasis on need. Yeah. We'll let you know if they manage to do so in Sunday's show. Can't mm. wait. There are two big concerns. One is technology failing us, and mm. the second is David winning. Mm. And I think and they've both managed are to quite guarantee likely. neither at the moment. So uh... maybe D- oh. David's technology will fail him, and problem solved. <laughs> no, he's got a new router. Yeah. yeah, and I've got my Mickey Mouse T-shirt on as well, so I'm ready, I'm ready to go. Um, right. Okay. Well, lovely to talk to you both about <laughs> Rome in 1992 and 2006. I'll see you again uh, on this very screen in this very office uh, in about five days' time. Have we got any shout outs? I, I have now found them, yes. Um, oh, go on then. Shout outs to Richard Nuttall. Hello, Cheers, Richard. Richard. To, to Zi Hong Yao. Hello, Zi Hong Yao. And to Heather M. 
Oh, Ooh, Heather incognito. Mm. But thank you. Are there any famous much. Heather M's? <laughs> Could it be a famous? It does sound like the name of, uh, of somebody on stage and screen, doesn't it? I've got a Heather Heather W, Heather L, Heather. No, that's all I've got. Heather McCartney. This, this is what tennis <laughs> what? podcast listeners want, isn't it? It's all right. No one's listening anymore. It's the end. <laughs> no. Right, so let's go. Heather uh, Locklear. We'll well, all right, okay. Keep your eye on our social media channels because we are coming at you over the next uh, month with Roland Garros and Wimbledon Relive to daily shows, some wonderful interviews that tell the stories, bring them alive from the some of the greatest moments in tennis history here on the tennis podcast that's what we're going to be doing um thank you for listening to this one do tell your friends if you're in one of those sort of tennis club whatsapp groups send our link out it's in the show notes of your uh, of your phone right now send our link out to all your whatsapp friends and uh, and get them listening to us as well leave us a review on itunes if you wouldn't mind as well uh, as long as it's five stars if it's zero stars go away uh, and uh, we'll speak to you soon here on the tennis podcast thanks for your company and uh, see you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.